So I'm going to do something a little bit different, something I haven't done in a really long time. Something I used to do every Sunday morning for a long time, because those of you that have followed me any for any length of time on here, you're somewhat familiar with my journey. And uh it's been it's been a wild ride, I'll have to admit. It's been a wild ride, but it's it's been good. And I feel like I'm in a really good place in my life and a good place in my journey right now. But I want to uh, do something I haven't done in a really long time. I want to teach from the the Bible, or as uh, my son likes to call it, the Holy Bible. <laughs> and uh, so one of the things that I did for decades was study very in-depthly the scriptures. Now, early on, when I uh, got into religion and I got into spirituality, I was very much like every other fundamentalist out there <laughs> in that uh, I took a very um, literal view of scripture. Hey, little Z, good morning to you. Took a very literal view of scripture. And so that's how I read the book. And I read it inside and out um, every day for decades. And then, I don't know, I guess around 2008, uh, I had a friend introduce me to uh, uh, biblical scholarship, not something that we valued in the group that I was with at the time. Uh, we used to make fun of people who went to seminary and say that they went to cemeteries uh people that were really scholarly in their approach i remember uh we just kind of poke fun at them and it was a really arrogant very very arrogant thing to do um but it was the worst kind of arrogance it was arrogance combined with ignorance i'm thinking about uh doing a series of teachings for anyone that might be interested this year uh on what bible scholars know that your pastor doesn't because a lot of pastors, especially in this day and age, either didn't attend any kind of formal education or training when it came to the Bible, or they went to their denominational um, schools run by the denominational headquarters. And so they weren't exposed to all that's out there in terms of biblical and historical scholarship and things like that. And as I began to dig more into biblical scholarship, the Bible just became messier and messier. It's amazing to me that we don't ever think about how did we, you know, how do we get this thing that we call the word of God, that we live our lives by, that's the sole source of our faith and the rule of our conduct. Like, never questioned that, really. Just kind of took it for granted that it was accurate, that it was historical, that it was uh, consistent. All that stuff. And so the more I got into biblical scholarship, the more the, the messier the Bible became for me. At the same time, I um, had a deep interest in Christian mysticism. I read a lot of books uh, from Christian mystics. I was fascinated with some of the early church fathers that had a more mystical approach to the Bible, and to define mysticism for me at the time, it meant to seek uh, union or oneness with God. 
But mysticism also has to do with the esoteric or the occult. I want to, I just wanted to find the term occult and dis, disarm that a little bit for people. The word occult or occult, however you say it, probably occult is maybe more accurate pronunciation. I'm not sure, but it comes from the word ocular, which has to do with our vision. And so the occult has to do with the study of things that are hidden. It's really all that that word means. And so mysticism, occultism, not, I'm not, and I'm not talking about Satan worship. Most people think occultism is just Satan worship because that's what they were taught in their churches and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, but I'm talking about this, this idea of the transcendence of the paranormal, of what's out there that we don't see that impacts and interacts with our lives and with our lives. So I'm also on this pursuit. So I'm doing a lot of meditation. I'm doing, trying a lot of different things, um, in, in the mystical realm. And so I had a number of what I would call mystical experiences. And so these two things kind of worked together. My mystical experiences were in some sense and in, in a lot of sense was violating what I had been taught and what I believed as an evangelical as a Pentecostal, as a fundamentalist. And then the more I studied biblical scholarship and really looked at the Bible objectively, it just became messier and messier and messier for me. And so my beliefs were changing and morphing. And then when I reached my 45th birthday, I just, the cupboard was bare. I just burnt out. And so through that process, I got into therapy and through the therapeutic process, I realized that most of what I was dealing with internally, not just the burnout, but things like uh, still dealing with self-esteem issues, self-doubt, second-guessing myself, uh, inner struggles and stuff that I was having was a direct result of the things that I was believing about God, about the universe, about myself. Um, and I've talked quite a bit about that. Just did a video with Vanessa R. Brooks, uh, who's absolutely brilliant, uh, and really, really speaks to issues like religious trauma syndrome and things of this nature. And, um, so you can go back on my page and you can look for that. Uh, it was a really, I think, valuable discussion where we talk about religious trauma and the effects and the impacts of religious trauma. And I talk about how there's a psychological component to it that messes us up internally. And then there's a social component to it as well, where uh, this is why I say people who are the most invested in their faith, the most dedicated, the most sold out, usually suffer the worst from religious trauma because they've internalized all the psychological principles that are damaging. But then they've invested their themselves in relationships with people that are experiencing the same thing. And there's such a group think to the whole thing that as long as you think like us, you're part of the group. If you begin to challenge the group think, if you begin to challenge how the group thinks, and that becomes a threat to the group. And we begin to act in these really sort of ancient, animalistic, evolutionary ways. You know, in the beginning, we formed communities and we formed groups and we formed tribes so that we could survive, so that we could hunt together or farm together or so that we could uh, protect ourselves from uh, other 
threats that were out there, right? And so when you begin to question, when, when a group forms strictly around a belief system, when they form around an agreement on ideologies, then that's the core of the group. That's what holds the group together and binds the group together. So when you begin to question the group think, when you begin to question this ideology that's bringing everybody together in a group, then you're not just questioning, you're threatening the integrity of the group. And so when you threaten the group, the group comes back at you. And that creates all kinds of trauma and isolation and and uh, things like that. And there are a lot of good people out there that just genuinely believe what they believe with all their heart. And they believe if you depart from the faith, at least the way they understand the faith, that there's going to be some kind of eternal consequences for you or there might even be temporal consequences for you. You're going to miss the will of God. You're going to uh, get out from underneath. God's umbrella of protection, uh, the devil's going to come get you, the devil's going to come attack you, you're going to get possessed, you're going to get deceived, you're going to get misled. We put the stakes really, really high on these things. And so sometimes people are coming back at you because they're genuinely afraid. They're not really coming at you with love and compassion and understanding. Uh, they're fearful. And so those fear responses, those sort of what we would call the reptilian brain the limbic system in the brain gets fired up and so you end up dealing with social consequences as well so the people that are really invested in their faith usually go through a period of repeated trauma and suffering and confusion and i know for myself my entire worldview began to break down uh which caused my entire identity to break down caused me to question everything and it's taken me <clears throat> some time to uh, get get centered and healed. Part of my healing process was to realize that the way I engaged with Christianity on all levels, spiritually, psychologically, socially, emotionally, hell, financially, um, <clears throat> was, you know, that was my entire life. And so to deconstruct that was to go through a complete deconstruction of who I was. And then how do you reconstruct? Where where do you go from there? Like I was talking to my friend Derek Day recently, and, you know, we were talking about the whole deconstruction community. Like you can't just keep deconstructing, 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 because eventually, you know, where do you where do you end up? At some point, you've got to find your equilibrium again and find your balance again. And so part of it for me, to allow my nervous system to heal, I had to get away from everything um, that was Christian. Yet I still had this sort of hunger for spirituality. I was interested in spiritual things. So I spent the last several years studying things like the occult. And when I say the occult, I mean, uh, I mean it in the way that I defined it at the beginning of the video. Studied other spiritual teachings and traditions. Uh, so, I haven't really looked much at the Bible, but what I want to do today is I want to give you an overview of what I think is going on in John's gospel uh, to read the text in sort of a subversive way, not just for the sake of being subversive, but so that perhaps we can look at how I believe it was intended to be read, which would be in a subversive way 
in order to bring some freedom <laughs> to our lives. So anyway, if nothing else, I hope you find it interesting. I know there's some of my viewers that don't want to go back or have anything to do with the Bible or anything like that. So this, you know, particular Sunday morning live may not be for you. Um, so what, what I want to do, though, is kind of give an overview of John's gospel. But before I do that, I want to read something from the book of Colossians that messes up fundamentalist Christianity. Um, and I know when I saw it, it, it just it changed changed everything for me. It was a real game changer as I was going through this process. Um, so I'm just going to read that real quick, and then we're going to kind of go through the Gospel of John, and then we'll we'll just see where it goes. But it's in it's in the first chapter of uh, Colossians, and uh, I'm going to start verse 24. He says here, um, I now rejoice in sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of His body, which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So this is important. He's talking about, I've been given something from God. I've been giving us, been given a stewardship. I've been given something to manage, something to uh, oversee from God in order that I might fulfill the word of God. And then he tells us what, it means to fulfill the word of God, the word of God. What is the word of God? Is the Bible the word of God? Well, Paul didn't have the Bible, obviously, because he's writing it. <laughs> or whoever wrote this, they, they don't think Paul wrote this book. But, well, whatever. The person who's who's penning these words didn't have the Bible because uh, presumably they're penning the Bible, right? Because it ended up in our Bible, in the book of Colossians. So the word of God has to be something else. It can't be the scriptures themselves. So that's the first error that we make in our thinking. And then he says, what is the word of God? He says in verse 26, it's the mystery, the mystery. So he's saying what his stewardship is, saying what his calling is. He's saying what his ministry is, and he's saying what the word of God is. The word of God is a mystery, or it is the mystery, a specific mystery, which has been hidden now, I want you to notice this. He says, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to all his saints. Then he tells us what it is. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And then he tells us what the mystery is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'm going to read that again. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he says, him we preach. (laughs) So what was the him that Paul was preaching? What was his ministry? What was his stewardship? What was the fullness of the word of God, as one translation says? It was this mystery that had always existed, but it had been hidden from previous generations. So he's saying, I'm preaching something that transcends generations, that transcends time. It's a mystery that's been hidden from ages and from generations. Now, when they're using the word ages in that time period, they're talking about astrological ages. 
So he's not just talking about, you know, going a few hundred years back. He's talking about thousands of years. He's saying here's something that's existed for thousands and thousands of years, that's existed for ages, that has existed for generations, but has been hidden. And Paul said now he's revealing what has been hidden, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what he said his mission was. That's what he said his ministry was, was to preach that and among the Gentiles, not just among the Jews. So he wasn't just propagating another form of Judaism. He wasn't trying to convert people to a form of Judaism. With all due respect to, you know, my friends out there that are hung up on uh, the Jewish roots of the scriptures or whatever, whatever you think was going on. Paul's saying here very clearly that he's or. Like I said, whoever wrote the book of Colossians is saying here very clearly that the mystery that they're preaching is something inside of you. It's this Christ that's inside of you. It's this Messiah that's inside of you. It's this divine spark. That's how it was understood uh, or how it is understood in the Western mystery tradition of what they would call the perennial wisdom or the wisdom of all the ages. Uh, that is this idea that you have a divine element to your life, not that you are... Uh, Something other than Christ, not that you are something other than God, but that you are a particle of God. You have a God particle on the inside of you. You have divinity woven into your very nature. But because it's been hidden from generations and because it's been hidden from ages, you don't know it. And so what Paul's saying is he's saying that his preaching and fulfilling the word of God is to awaken that divine spark or that Christ that is inside of you. And that by connecting with the Christ that is in you, that is the hope of glory. Now, the reason I'm starting with this when I want to go back to the Gospel of John and give you sort of my overview of John's gospel is because I think that what John is doing in the writing or the writing of the book of John What's going on is it's this same idea that it's to reveal the Christ that is in you, not the Christ that is other than you, and certainly not, therefore, anything that really has anything to do in this context with the historical person of Jesus. So anyway, if you're, if you're watching this and you're a, you know, fundamentalist, uh, or you go to a church someplace, you know, ask your pastor. <laughs> I bring it up in Bible study. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you'll get, you'll start challenging that group link and you'll get some of that, uh, backlash that I was talking about earlier. But I, I, I want to just give you an overview of what I think is going on in John's gospel. And so in the beginning, we know it says in the beginning was the word, the logos in the Greek. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And one of the ways for understanding logos is, uh, I think consciousness in the beginning was consciousness in the beginning was mind. Um, and this mind or this consciousness was with God and this mind or consciousness was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him without him. Nothing was made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. So I think you could say that what John's saying here is that in the beginning, everything was just mind. Everything was just word. Everything was just logos or everything was just consciousness. But in this consciousness, it contained life. So the mystery of life, uh, what causes us to have animation, what sets us apart from inanimate objects was this life that was in this consciousness. And this consciousness had energy. This energy was the light of men. 
And then he says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So again, it's kind of this idea that it existed, but it was a mystery. People just didn't know about it. And then he says, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. This man came as a witness, etc., etc. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness to the light. Verse 9, that was the true light, which gives light to every person coming into the world. Gives light to every person coming into the world, not just Christians, not just people who have repented. Uh, he, he really, there's no place in John's gospel that you can find this doctrine of original sin that we believe here in the West. Then he says, he, uh, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. And he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. I'm just going to jump down to, well, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it says, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, here's the problem. This little tiny word among, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you have a, a... a Bible that's somewhat honest, you're going to have a footnote by that word among. And if you look at the footnote, it's going to say or within. The word became flesh and dwelt among us or the word became flesh and dwelt within us. A huge difference in how they translate that word. So when I was first getting into this, one of the things I did, because I'm just a nerd that way, and I sometimes I go down rabbit holes too much, but I looked up the word among there in the Greek and I ran it through concordance, and I looked at every other place that this word gets translated. And every other place that I could find that I looked at where it gets translated, it has to do with dwelling within something. Uh, even as simple as they went into a room or they went into the temple or they were in the temple. It's that same word that gets translated among. In fact, the only two places I could find where it got translated among was right here in John 1, chapter 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us separate from us, other than us, in other words. And um, in Luke 17, where Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you, most translations now corrected it, but it used to say the kingdom of God is among you. But they haven't corrected it here in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this is why this is so different, because it says, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the question is, where are you looking? Are you looking outside yourself? Because if it's among, then we're looking at the historical person of Jesus. And this is where, uh, you, you know, God bless them, but my friends that are, um, what should we say, uh, more progressive Christians, uh, more compassionate Christians, maybe, uh, this is where I think we get messed up because what they'll say is, you know, one of the problems that Christians have is how do we deal with the evil of the Old Testament? How do we deal with this evil God of the Old Testament, right? And so <laughs> what they'll say is, well, God came in the flesh, and to look at Jesus is to look at God. But how do you look at Jesus? Because he's not walking around among us today. The only way you can look at Jesus is to go to these scriptures, right, and then let the scriptures kind of paint the picture for you. Or people say, well, I mystically hang out with Jesus and get to know him by spending time in his presence, but... How do we really define that? Um, I don't even want to get into that. But what I want to suggest is that it should have been translated, and what the writers intended for it to say was the word became flesh and dwelt within us. 
and we beheld his glory. So that means, just like Paul said, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that means that what's happening from this point onward in John's gospel is that we're supposed to be looking within. Because the word is within us. So in other words, what I think he's saying here is that we all were in this logos in the beginning. And it was the logos, it was this divine spark, this Christ in you that Paul's talking about, that illuminates us, that gives us light and gives us revelation, but it's been in the darkness, it's been hidden. You see where I'm going with this. Now, the next thing that you see, and I'm, again, I'm just going to give you an overview of what I think is happening in John's gospel, and you can do with it what you want. But the very first thing that we see where Jesus speaks, uh, verse 37, I'm going to pick it up. It says, two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned and seeing them, said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to be say when translated teacher, where are you staying? Or really the better translation is where do you abide or where do you dwell? Where do you live? And then Jesus just turns to them and says, come and see. So what I want to suggest is that this is setting the stage for the rest of the book, that the reader is supposed to enter into the text and use the text to look within themselves, to behold the glory that's actually within them, the glory of the divine that is within them. And they're supposed to walk with these two disciples and come and see where Jesus is dwelling. So the whole trajectory is heading towards, this is going to come up later, heading towards this idea of come and see, come and look, come and see. Where are we seeing? We're beholding within. Now, here's where we also get messed up. This means that, that you have to ask yourself the question, am I to read the text symbolically and mythologically. And when I say mythologically, I don't mean a fairy tale. I don't mean a story that's not true. I mean, in the truest sense of a myth, something that is symbolic, something that is a story that has what Carl Jung referred to as these archetypes in it, so that it applies to every person in every generation, regardless of culture, regardless of where you're living. A myth has the power to speak to you about your now. It has the power to speak to you about your life. It, it, uh, Joseph Campbell in his work on myth, he says that myths speak to our spiritual potential and awaken it. So we're supposed to read the story and find ourselves in the story. We're not supposed to read it as a historical document. And we're certainly not supposed to read it literally, which I think I'll be able to prove from the Gospel of John itself without question here in a couple of minutes. And here, so here's the great error of the Christian church. This is why religion has really gone off the edge or gone off the cliff. This is also why it's not bearing fruit. I mean, come on, guys, just sit back and think about what kind of fruit is religion, particularly white evangelicalism, or white charismatic Christianity, what kind of fruit are we bearing today? Is there is there love and compassion that's coming from the church, or is it just mostly anger and fear mongering and hatred, just absolute hatred? Because we're and and pridefulness and superiority. We're better than everybody else. We've got the truth. We speak as the voice of the Creator. We speak as the voice of God. Therefore, we have the right to tell everybody how in our society how they are supposed to live, and we will. Enforce it with the laws, and we will other other people. 
I mean, if you're a Christian out there and you're talking about libtards and you're talking about the democrats and you you get a certain joy out of owning the libs or you're able to follow uh, a leader of a political party who does nothing but hurl insults and hatred at people, if you get off on listening to these preachers that make you feel high and make you feel big and make you feel mighty and strong and powerful because you got the truth, and and they're giving voice to your hatred. And so you want to go out and say that a woman can't choose what she does with her body, that she doesn't have choice over her own uh, uh, womb and reproductive system, that she can't have access to the best of modern medicine that's available because somehow your God that you believe in has told you that they're wrong and they're baby killers and baby murderers and you endorse that kind of thing. Or just because you happen to be a cis male in this case, let's say, who's heterosexual in your sexual orientation and you don't understand sexuality, you don't understand the science behind gender, you don't understand the difference between sex and gender. Again, we're combining ignorance and arrogance. And so you're just going to go out there and you're going to tell other people, come on, let's be honest. What's the fruit that literalist religion is producing in the earth today? It's producing division. It's producing hatred. It's producing fear mongering. Uh, it's producing bondage. It's taking things away from other people. And that's what it's always done. That's what it's always done. That's what it's always been. It's always been rotten to the core. If you want to talk about something that's demonic or satanic, uh, Christianity that takes a literal interpretation of the Bible and walks around with this prideful superiority that somehow they've got the truth and everybody else doesn't. And, uh, and, and, and if the Bible says it, I, I believe it and that settles it. So I close my mind to scientific progression. I close my mind to any other kind of progress in any other kind of realm. And I just live in an intellectual ghetto and I don't want kids reading books and I don't want them knowing about the history, the real honest history of what's happened in this nation. And I don't want there to be any kind of a reckoning as to the evils upon which this nation was founded. Uh, with the destruction of native peoples, with the enslavement of the Africans, the black people, with the enslavement of the Asians, with, uh, I mean, hell, it, it was, you know, World War II. We were picking up people of Asian descent or Japanese descent, and we were taking everything away from them and putting them in internment camps. And then when they got out of the internment camps, they didn't get their stuff back. And you don't want to have an honest reckoning with that? Then you don't want the truth. You're not about the truth. Don't give me, don't give me this crap that you're, you're promoting the truth and you just want the truth. No, you want something to be a vehicle for your own prejudice and your own hatred. And literalist religion gives us the opportunity to do that. Literal Christianity, Christianity that takes a literal approach that does not have the depth to understand the myth, that does not have the depth to understand the symbolism that might be within it, that does not understand how it could be a tool that could awaken spiritual potentials inside of people. And I know there's people out there that listen to me, some of my best friends, that you know think it's all garbage and all junk, and that's fine. I have no issue with that whatsoever. We agree on most things. I'm just saying that the fundamental deception, the fundamental error where where the church went off the tracks, was looking at these things from a literal perspective and locking into that 
instead of, because this thing's been rotten to the core from the beginning. Just study your church history. Just go look at the Crusades. Look at what happened during the Crusades where, uh, in France. Uh, look at the genocides that happened that are justified by the Bible. Justified by the Bible. Look at the wars. Look at the division among Abrahamic faiths and the mess that the world's in today. It wouldn't be in this mess if we had stuck with a more symbolic mythical interpretation instead of going with the literal interpretation. Now, how can I say, how can I say with certainty, at least from John's gospel, that we shouldn't be taking John's gospel? I mean, I don't know about the rest of the books, but for sure, John's gospel should not be taken literally. And here's how I know. Because the very next thing that Jesus does, the very next thing that you see in the story, or that the writer of the story does, is basically you get this section of the book where Jesus, the figure Jesus in the story, is pointing out the absolute absurdity of a literal interpretation and trying to show and demonstrate that what he's talking about is metaphoric, symbolic, and mythical. And somehow we miss it. And not only is he pointing out that you shouldn't take it literally, he's saying if you take it literally, you miss the whole thing. You miss the whole boat. (laughs) Well, how does he do that, Aaron? Well, first he talks to a guy named Nicodemus who comes to him at night. And he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus takes it literally. He says, how can I enter into my mother's womb to be born a second time? He's looking at the literal, physical interpretation of Jesus' words, you must be born again. And Jesus has to rebuke him and say, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? But then he also goes on and says, "I'm not basically, I'm not talking about a natural birth. I'm talking about being born from above. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth, a spiritual renewal type of thing. So he rebukes him for the uh, literal interpretation there. And then in the next chapter, He meets this woman at a well, and he says, uh, give me something to drink from this well. And she says, uh, uh, you know, I'm sorry. He, He says to her, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. And if you would drink from this well, you'd never thirst again. And she's like, whoa, I won't have to draw water anymore. I can just, you know, one drink will do it, and I'll be good for the rest of my life. Where is this well? She's looking at the literal, physical interpretation of Jesus' words, and she's saying, where is this well that I may drink? And do we worship on this mountain, or do we worship on that mountain? She's looking at the physical representations. She's looking outside herself for God. She's looking outside herself for the divine. She's looking for a literal well, and Jesus tells her, no, I'm talking about a well that is within you, that is full of living water, that will spring up unto everlasting life. So with both Nicodemus and the woman at the well, the primary lesson in the thing is don't take the literal interpretation. If you take the literal interpretation, you're crazy. You're going to miss the whole thing. And what I'm talking about is something that's spiritual, which he does in the next chapter. He talks about being the bread that comes down from heaven. And uh, how Moses gave your father's manna, but I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And they take it literally and they become offended because they think he's it's teaching something about cannibalism or something like that. And Jesus finally has to come. Even his own disciples were going to walk away from him. And he has to come and he has to say, uh, look. My words are spirit and my words are life. You're you're missing the whole point. So this section of the book is really important because he's telling us don't read it literally. Don't look for it as something physical. 
You don't worship on this mountain or that mountain, or you don't come into the house of God on Sunday mornings. Uh, He says the Father is looking for those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. So regardless of what you think, regardless of what your beliefs are about God or or any of that stuff at this stage of where you're at, uh, and I'm not even giving you my own where I'm at with stuff necessarily, I'm just saying that we've been reading it all wrong, at least the Gospel of John, and that the greatest error in our, we missed the whole thing by taking a literal interpretation and looking at these physical things, coming into the house of God. We need to take care of the house of the Lord. You know, we would get people to clean toilets and make them think they were really doing God's service because they were taking care of the house of God uh, and all, all that kind of stuff. Um <clears throat> So Jesus is saying, no, it's not about a mountain. It's not about a physical religion. It's not about a well. It's not about a rebirth in your mother's womb. These are all spiritual truths that I'm speaking to you. Now, remember, keep this in the context of Jesus' disciples saying, where do you dwell? And he says, come and see, because that's the trajectory of the book. And we know this because when we get to John 14, (laughs) verse 2, Jesus says, in my father's house, in my father's dwelling place, where do you dwell? In my father's house, there are many mansions, there are many abiding places. It's the same word, same word used over and over and over. Abide, 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 dwell. The word became flesh and dwelt within us. Master, where do you dwell? What what do you seek? Master, where do you dwell? Come and see. So now we're, we're finally getting it. We're finally getting to the unveiling of it. He says, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. So how the hell can we just say that we exclusively have the truth and you have to follow our spiritual path and you have to go our spiritual way and you can't you can't have your own path or your own way. You can't uh, because there are many dwelling places. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. So it's individual. So this is an individual path because you're looking within. This is the opposite of groupthink. This is actually written to be subversive, like I was saying, to subvert religion, to subvert subvert groupthink and things like that, and to say, look, if you're looking for a place to dwell, don't look at where I'm dwelling. Don't, what do you seek? Master, where do you dwell? He says, look, it doesn't matter where I dwell. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places, and there's a place prepared for you. So we don't have to get together. We don't have to. We should never uh, reduce, if, if, if spirituality means anything, it's an opportunity for us to evolve. It's an opportunity for us to grow. It's an opportunity for us to ascend. It's an opportunity for us to raise our consciousness, to raise our awareness, to improve ourselves. Whatever, however you want to understand the term spirituality. For me, I still, I'm still believe in spirituality because I still believe in something transcendent and connecting with something transcendent. And I think it's okay if we call that the word, or we call that God, or we call that source, or we call that consciousness. It doesn't matter to me. But the point is, that it's not a group think thing. And so what we do is we take spirituality and we take this reductionist approach, this really, you know, prehistoric evolutionary approach that we have to be in groups in order to be safe. And if you challenge our thinking, you're challenging the group. So you're challenging our survival. You're a threat to our survival. This is why religious people act so crazy. 
This is why they get so upset with you when you ask questions. This is why they get upset with you and tell you God's going to curse you or you're going to step out of the will of God or whatever when you leave their group because they're reverting back to the reptilian brain. They're reverting back to base animal instincts. They're doing the opposite of ascension. They're doing the opposite of spirituality. The exact opposite of it. And they're reacting in this evolutionary way out of an inflamed limbic system, out of what we call a reptilian brain, and they're attacking you because you attack the group. But Jesus says here in my father's house, there are many mansions. See, it's subversive. It's subverting religion. It's subverting religion. And we've taken it and we've done exactly what is plain as the nose on my face, where Jesus is saying, don't take the literal interpretation. And we've taken John's gospel as well as the rest of the writings of scripture and said, this has to be the literal way it is. This is the literal word of God. And we produce nothing but hatred and division while we're othering people. And and really is the root of most evils in human society today, the root of most conflict, the root of a lot of strife. All right. If I was in church, I'd say I'm preaching better than you're shouting. So then he says, let's just come down to verse 10. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. Believe in me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe me for the works. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he shall do also and greater works than these because I go to the Father. And then later on in here, um, if you read through just 14, 15, 16, and even 17, later on in here, he talks about uh, it's expedient. It's to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, I'll send the spirit of truth to you. And so basically what he's saying here is that you become the house of the spirit. This whole thing with John 15, I'm the vine and you are the branches. If we're looking for the Christ among us, then we read that as Jesus saying that the historical Jesus, Lord and Savior Jesus, is the vine and we are the branches. But if we read it correctly, the way it's introduced to us, that the word dwells within us and we behold his glory within us, then we understand that there is a divine eye, that there is a, a an other eye, if you will, a divine eye, a higher self, a deeper self, and a more authentic self, whatever, however you want to understand it. Um, this, see, this is, I think this is so important because look, if, if there is not a higher self, if there is not a divine self and there is not a divine spark in you, then your entire personality is just the byproduct of your conditioning and your genetics. It's 100% the byproduct of the biological tissues in your brain and the changes that are made to your brain based on your environment. Therefore, you have no self to speak of. You have no self in reality at all. You're just a composite or, uh, yeah, a composite of synaptic, synaptic firings and chemical changes that are happening in the brain. And so, and as soon as, you know, that begins to deteriorate and, and whatever, as you age, then you lose those aspects. And when you die, boom, that's it, lights out. And so basically you are just an animal. That's all you are. You are an animal with self-consciousness. And I'm sorry, I find that uninspiring. I find it depressing. So again, I'm going to say what I said last week. I, I I realize I have a bias here. But for me, it's a more energizing, it's a more motivating, it's a more invigorating 
way to look at life to say that there is a deeper, more transcendent self, a transcendent self that some people call the I am, a divine self that is an eternal aspect of God, not separate from God, not created out of nothing, but actually an expression of the eternal God, which means that you've always existed, that just like Jesus says in John's gospel, before Abraham was, I am, you and I can say the same thing, that we have existed from eternity past and will exist into eternity forward, and that divine spark is buried, as Paul says in another place, at like treasure in an earthen vessel, and our, and what we're doing is awakening that Spark, that's the vine that we are to abide in. In other words, what I think it's saying here is connect with your true essence, connect with your true self, connect with your authentic self, connect with the part of you that transcends your opinions, that transcends your ideas, that transcends your beliefs, that transcends your experiences, that transcends this really in self-centered way, but it's a centered, I'm sorry, upon a self that is very transitory that your moods change like your appetite changes. I'm in the mood for Indian food today. Tomorrow I want Mexican food. I think I'll just have eggs this morning. I think I want to have uh, cheesecake instead of chocolate cake. Like, is all of us that transient? Or is there something more stable? Is there something more rock solid? Is there something more eternal and substantial? And if there is, that's what we're being invited to look at. And that's the vine that if you abide in, you'll bring forth much fruit. And if you don't abide in it, what? You're cut off. You're cut off from the vine and what? You're thrown into the fire because all you have left is temporal. All you have left is the temporal. All you have left is the here and the now. And so what I think the writer here is doing is using Jesus as a figure of what's true in you that is written in such a fashion that if read correctly can awaken those things inside your consciousness can awaken and raise that divine spark. So anyway, um, I'm going to take a second, look at a few of the comments. Um, so I hope, hope that was okay with everybody. <laughs> ben Urban says cemetery is more adequate name for schools of theology. For they are where free thought is forever laid to rest. Uh, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say all schools of theology. I would say schools of theology that are run by denominational churches. That's mostly true, for sure. Um, good morning, Marie. Hey, Hope Anthony. Yeah, I'm back on Sunday. It's going to be more consistent. Good morning, Jeanette. Um, hey, Vanessa R. Brooks. Good to see you. Um Vanessa says, all is mine. Hey, Carl, good to see you on. Um, Jermaine, my man, good to see you, man. Yeah, afternoon where you are. It's still morning here, at least in my world. Um, all right, man. Uh, I think that's about all that I'm seeing. Thanks, guys, for watching, I hope. Let me know what you think of this, because um, I am planning on being on more. Uh, and I'm doing this for you guys. I'm not just doing this for myself. There was a time this was cathartic for me. And I was doing it, if nothing else, for myself. But I've, I've kind of gotten past that stage. So let me know. I mean, we can delve into other types of spirituality. We can look more at, you know, mystical interpretations of scripture. 
We can look at, uh, you know, just psychological principles, religious trauma. Uh, those are kind of my areas of expertise. You guys know that. So just let me know uh, what's interesting to you. Um, let me know if there's anybody out there you'd be interested in uh, attending a class um, that would not be free. You know, I'll make it affordable, but not be free if there's any interest in there about um, going through a, a class on, you know, what Bible scholars know that your preacher doesn't um, just for the education of it. So anyway, thanks. If you're watching this, if you're listening to the podcast. This also goes out to our podcast. Big shout out to Roger Brown, who makes sure this gets up on the podcast on iTunes every time we do one. If you're listening by podcast, uh, check out my YouTube channel. Um, I do have some stuff on YouTube that doesn't go to uh, my podcast. And uh, if you're watching this later, um, anyway, hope you're doing great. Thank you for spending your time with me. Hope you enjoyed this.